Hello there and welcome to Wildlife Heroes, Caring for the Carers, the podcast that takes care of wildlife volunteers. There are over 15,000 wildlife volunteers around the country. So the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife is aiming to start a mental health conversation around the five key topics that worry you the most. Community conflict, catastrophic events, supporting others, anxiety around climate change, and today, personal well-being. And we're recording this during an unprecedented time for the world, for Australians and for wildlife carers on the front line, coping after a terrible summer of droughts and fires and flood, and now dealing with the COVID-19 coronavirus. So some of our guests are being remotely recorded for self-quarantine purposes, and their voices will sound a little bit different because of that. So today we're asking, what can you do to look after yourself on a regular basis so that you can keep on doing this thing that you love? How can you identify when the stress is getting too much? In each episode, we'll get to know an individual wildlife volunteer around our main theme. And then with a guest psychologist or mental health expert, we'll look at how that situation might reflect broader experiences in the carer community. I'm Gretchen Miller. I'm an audio documentary maker, and I've long been talking about our relationship with the wild, with experts and unique individuals from all walks of life. On this episode, we welcome Susie Nethercott-Watson, a carer for 20 years and the director of Two Green Threads, a website built specially to support wildlife volunteers in the work they do. And we've got Sharon Draper, animal lover and Sydney-based psychologist with a particular interest in trauma and compassion fatigue and who works using a number of therapies in a holistic way. Susie, let's start with you. Tell us about your caring. Where did you start? Thanks, Gretchen. It's one of those life journeys I think you look back on and try and work out, well, what was the moment where it all commenced? I think I've always had an affinity and interest in animals and after moving into a rural property, driving along country roads, you were often seeing impacted wildlife from cars, etc. And there was a chance meeting one day at a local show where I walked past the local wildlife group, a little stand basically, and I realised that there was organisations that actually directly assisted the wildlife in those sort of circumstances and I joined up and from that moment I have started a wildlife caring journey that has become you know, fundamentally important to me and means a lot in terms of being able to connect to the environment. And I started with the general sort of courses and then I broke into a specialisation in macropods and also wombats and particularly at the end that we call pinkies, which are the tiny, tiny little furless babies that are very intense needs animals. So yeah, that's basically where I started and I've been doing it since then and it occupies a considerable part of my life. And when you go about your caring duties as you're handling these tiny little creatures, what's the primary feeling that you have in your heart? Is it tenderness? Is it protectiveness? What does it bring you emotionally doing this work? That's a very good question. I think a little bit of both. There's a level of vulnerability that you see in what you're looking after. And I think one of the lucky experiences I have as a wildlife carer is I can take them all the way through to release. And so seeing the journey from that tiny little animal through to something that reconnects and joins 
its nature and its environment is a pretty special journey. So at the beginning, when they're tiny, definitely the vulnerability triggers a level of, like you said, tenderness and need to support a little being that effectively needs everything done for it. But I guess also, I don't know if it's a description of a feeling, I'm sure Sharon will be able to tell me, but there's this level of connectiveness, a level of looking into this little being's eyes and realising that that lives in the wild and in the environment and in our nature. And I get to have a special part in trying to help this little being move through a journey that wasn't its own fault in terms of why it came into a human world and where it can eventually come out to and where it's supposed to be. So I'm constantly driven by knowing that it's got to go back to nature. And a lot of people say, oh, I don't know how you can ever let them go. Well, that's actually the point. They don't belong with us in our world. They belong in the environment where they were born and should have been. So connectiveness and a level of triggering of gentleness and stillness that that brings about. Mm, The stillness, that's a really powerful image there. Sharon, coming to you, what makes a wildlife carer, what kind of person cares for this quite tricky group of more than human creatures on our planet? Yeah, absolutely. The people that tend to become carers are altruistic, compassionate, they're sensitive to themselves and the environment that they live in, as well as um, people who have an affinity to animals in particular often do become carers or they'd like to at least. So it's that type of personality, just that helper, seeing more than just themselves, seeing the world that they live in and the community that they're part of and um, trying to or wanting to help. So that altruism is an important part of that kind of personality. And, you know, a lot of people which I know we'll get to, tend to be very compassionate towards others. Whatever helping profession you're in, there's compassion and empathy, being able to try and understand what a person or a little being could be going through and wanting to help. So kindness is something that's important as well, but compassion takes it a step further and empathy takes it another step further where you're actually wanting to try and help the person who's in that pain. But the thing with that is that in order to be able to understand that compassion and really feel that compassion, you have to understand that kind of pain within yourself in order to be able to really connect with that being that is going through whatever it's going through. I think that's a really important point. You understand pain. So you're a highly sensitive person who is very empathic. You feel the pain of others. Can that become overwhelming? So the exhaustion is a, is a big one, which unfortunately a lot of these symptoms you feel anyway. Feeling tired, I'm sure Susie can relate. You know, when you're looking after a little animal that you need to feed every hour, I mean, you're not really sleeping as well as you would. So there is a level of exhaustion, but this will be more a cumulative buildup of symptoms. So the exhaustion, feeling like you want to check out as well, feeling like you're just not coping. And even you might be saying to yourself, like, I'm not coping, I can't do this, I need to get away or whatever it is. It's when you start noticing the way you talk to yourself and the way you're feeling overwhelmed, then that's starting the slippery slope of going into a place that you're not going to feel like you're able to actually cope and do the work that you're wanting to do. So exhaustion is a big one, just really feeling like you just aren't able to cope anymore, getting quite irritable with the people around you, wanting to check out of society, not wanting to connect with friends or spend time with people. And that's a tricky one too, especially with 
wildlife carers because I think a lot of people that I know that I work with who love animals, a lot of them start saying things like I hate people <laughs> or I don't like people, which is a problem too because it's important to be able to integrate and connect with people that are caring as well as animals. Yeah, I have heard many a wildlife carer say, oh, I really love animals, people not so much. And I reckon there might be a few listening now who think, oh, yeah, that's me. Now, it's almost a point of pride, I think. But might it be something just to not to criticise, but to look at yourself and say, OK, I feel that way. But is that necessarily a good thing? Mm, absolutely. I think it's really important to be able to just recognize where that's coming from. Of course, if you have received an animal that you're looking after that's been knocked over by a car or something like that, it's quite easy to be able to kind of blame somebody else or think that humans are causing this trauma for animals and wildlife. But by blaming or, or trying to sort of isolate yourself from humans when we are humans ourselves and we need to stick together, we need to try and find a way that we can overcome come that feeling in the sense of, well, maybe you need to go out into the community to teach people or to try and help them understand the impact that humans are having, like with climate change, you know, is there something that maybe you could do to try and help the process along or help teach other people to really get them to see and become more conscious of their actions and how they impact wildlife? Sharon, in terms of this sort of saying that we have about we're an animal person, not a people person, Gretchen, you talked about sometimes it's a sort of element of pride and sometimes we sort of use it as an either or, so we're either an animal person or a people person and I think it's okay to be both. I think sometimes in volunteering organisations across all not-for-profits, but it does exist in wildlife care and communities as well, we sometimes use that I'm an animal person, not a people person as a shield for how we interact and talk with one another. And I think that's where it sort of comes back to having a level of awareness that you can still get on with people or enjoy the company of individuals and still be an animal person. It doesn't have to be a either-or situation. And I think we should acknowledge too that often people turn to animals when they've been hurt by humans themselves. And this is a rational response. Animals accept us with all our faults and flaws and they also don't hold on to the history that we hold on to. So if you have had terrible experiences with humans, perhaps as a child, it makes sense to turn to animals. But again, that isolation with animals might not serve you so well all of the time. Mm, it's it's a balance again because there's that unconditional love and I love what Susie was saying about that connection being able to look into their eyes and there's some research that they've done where oxytocin is a, a feel-good hormone and it's a bonding hormone it's usually only really between sort of the mother and the baby but what they've discovered is if you look at say your dog as an example if your pet and you're staring at your dog and your dog's looking back at you you're building oxytocin between you and you're building that bond and the more you kind of look at it and the more it looks at you, you kind of keep bonding through and building that hormone. So that's like a different species to us, which is amazing. Susie, can I ask you if you recognise in yourself in your 20 odd years of caring, whether you've ever experienced compassion fatigue and burnout? Thanks, Gretchen. That was a, that's a complex question. And I don't know if it's just me, but I really shy away from badging myself with compassion fatigue or having even the capacity to have it. It sort of scares me in a way because of what it might mean about where I sit. And 
I know that one of the elements that started me on a journey of creating Two Green Threads was a level of awareness about the risk factors that we face in the wildlife caring community that make us very susceptible to mental health and obviously physical health elements as well. And I think I get a little bit confused sometimes between the intersection between burnout and compassion fatigue because there is a nature in the work that we do that a lot of us take on an awful lot and there is a great need for looking after the wildlife and assisting them in this current world of major difficulties. And so there's a hefty workload from that point of view. Thanks so much for sharing that, Susie, because I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. And in the community that I work with, whether it's wildlife carers or other people, I find a lot of people are really personally don't like boxing people in or labeling people either with a diagnosis as such, because that can be problematic as well, because you can kind of succumb to it too. Like I'm an anxious person rather than I'm experiencing anxiety right now, or I'm feeling fatigued right now. So I love that you highlighted that because I think a lot of people will relate to it. I think I'd like to talk a bit about compassion fatigue, burnout and vicarious trauma because there's a lot of overlap with that and it is quite confusing. But more just to have an understanding of it, not to necessarily try and fit yourself into a box, more just being aware that there is such a thing so that you don't feel so alone, that there is something that people experience when we're doing this kind of work. So I'll just start with burnout. Burnout can occur in any kind of setting. So you could be sort of in a corporate nine to five job and you're just feeling really overworked. There's just too much work of a workload or you're working longer hours. You can develop burnout in that way. And just that you're feeling exhausted from an emotional, psychological, physical level. So it's that fatigue again that you do feel, but it's more specific, can be any kind of role you play or any kind of work-related role you have. And the thing with burnout is it can be rectified fairly easily in the sense, you know, you just talk to your boss and say, I can't work after hours or something like that, or I need less of a workload. And then once that's adjusted, you can feel better again. With compassion fatigue, it's usually in the helping professions where people can develop that absolute fatigue in the sense that you feel like you can't go on anymore. You can't do the things that you were doing, that giving, 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 and kind of your emotional reserves start depleting so much that you feel like you've got nothing to give anymore. And like I said before, with compassion fatigue, it can kind of flow into feelings of guilt and then shame as well which, like I said, was quite problematic if you start believing that you're not a good person or you're not good at caring. And then vicarious trauma is where you have experienced trauma. You don't have to have experienced it directly, but it could be an animal that's come in that has experienced trauma and you experience it in a vicarious way, so sort of like a secondary way. But what that does is if you get exposed to that over a prolonged period, you start developing a shift in your worldview. So you start feeling like the world isn't a good place anymore. And that's also very problematic because then that can just kind of blanket your experience from a day-to-day perspective from then on. So it's quite important to just be aware of the warning signs in that sense. But I really love that you said that, Susie, in the sense that a lot of people don't want to label themselves and also because they feel like it would be a badge, like you said, or like a mark, you know, against your name. And I find a lot of wild dove carers as well, they feel that they can't be honest about how they're feeling to maybe the community because they're afraid that then they won't be able to or, or people, the organisation that they're working for will will not let them look after animals anymore and that's 
that's what they do. So I think there's a lot of fear based around that, that people won't really understand. And therefore, a lot of people keep it to themselves. I think we've just had a really interesting and complex look at some of the mental health experiences that wildlife carers have. And we'll get in a minute to some top tips really for coping with some of this. But before we do, there's just one other kind of primary experience that I think wildlife carers will have. And in that, what they do is literally a matter of life and death. There are very particular stresses and very particular kinds of grief that a wildlife volunteer carer might feel. Could we outline some of those feelings of grief? So we've looked at compassion fatigue and burnout. What about grief? What are some of the grief experiences that volunteers might feel? There are apparently 18 forms of grief. 18 different forms yeah. of feeling terrible. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's important also not to overwhelm people with information to like, oh, which grief have I got? I think it's just important if you're feeling like understanding what grief is and being able to grieve is recognizing the loss that you felt. And I think it's important with wildlife carers, and I think Susie can understand this as well, I'm sure, there's disenfranchised grief where a lot of other people who maybe aren't in this community community don't necessarily understand. I think it's important to understand that, that a lot of the time, not everyone can fully understand what you're going through, but it doesn't mean that what you're going through is silly or you shouldn't be feeling this way for an animal. So I think it's important to be aware that grief is important. It's part of our living. It's part of our experience as people and as beings, sentient beings. And I think with grief, it's about giving yourself permission to grieve. And what grief really is, is being able to let it out, expressing that in some way. Some people might not feel they can talk to others about it. And I would encourage people to try and find maybe one person, just one, like a mentor or a close friend that you can kind of really nurture that relationship if you feel safe with them. You know, try to find another human that you can talk to about it is really important. But the other thing is you can try and express it in some way. Let yourself cry. Paint something, if that makes sense to you. Write it out. Like, you know, allow yourself to feel those feelings and try not to let any ignorant, maybe extended society remark about not being able to feel the grief. Kind of let that go if you can. Because like I said before, we have these bonding experiences with animals and they're part of our lives. And I think... As soon as you start allowing yourself to be able to recognize that you're allowed to express your feelings when you feel sorrow and loss, then you're able to walk through it, to move through it. Because a lot of people talk about like, how do I get over grief? And you really don't get over it. You just go through it. You've got to allow yourself to express whatever you're feeling. So just picking up on what Sharon said, and it's so helpful to hear other people say it, and particularly professionals that should be reminding us about how to look after ourselves in times which are often uh, in a wildlife caring experience occurring regularly in terms of loss of animals. Sharon started by talking about 18 different forms of grief, and quite rightly, we don't have to concentrate on the fact that there are that many, but there is a published CSIRO study that actually indicates that wildlife carers experience 15 of the 18 different types in the sorts of work that we do. And I think for me, grief is a large component of this whole journey with wildlife. In my experience, because I look after eastern grey kangaroos, predominantly and I've got to say I have no idea how that species survives because they are so stressful and are really 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 difficult to raise in terms of the success rates and what happens to them in care but I think there's a combination of trauma and grief that often intersect and so you may lose an animal and there's the loss that Sharon indicated and trying to work through what that means 
But there's often a layer of that vicarious trauma about what this little being has been through or if it's an experience that happened has happened in care, what were their feelings, how hurt they would have been. If a dog came and was running around the enclosure and eventually, you know, they suffered from capture myopathy or something. There's a level of trauma in your grief process that you sometimes, I think, gets interwoven really, really strongly because you put yourself in the place of the animal and what they've experienced. And it becomes such a strong and overwhelming feeling to try and work out what role you had in it or whether you're just effectively putting yourself into that position of what that animal has gone through. I remember having a conversation with a friend, carer, one day when we had, obviously many years ago when it rained, there was a massive downpour one afternoon and we were chatting about something a few hours later and she was in nearly tears going, you know, it went through an area of my property where I know all of the mob lives and part of my enclosure and I was picturing what the animals were going through and I just can't stop thinking about them. So I think there's that real intersection that makes it a sort of complex process when we go through it, taking aside whether we've got any element of self-blame that we somehow want to put in there as well. So we wouldn't be here to talk about personal care if wildlife carers weren't who they were. Self-care might be a bit easier if they were less inclined to put the animals first, but they do struggle to look after themselves. What are your top tips as a carer for coping with the pressure of daily care? And you're actually in one of, of course, the highest pressure caring sectors looking after the little ones. I guess I'd have to start with saying I don't think I have some sort of silver bullet magic list of if you follow the following five tips, everything will be okay. And I guess one of the first things I can say is when we touched on this before, there's a level of self-compassion and self-awareness that recognises that self-care is even needed. But I know that from a value basis, I have a value of service and service to others. So it's sort of contradictory in a way to therefore go, oh, well, what about me and how am I doing it? And one of the sort of logic things that I've come to, and it's one of the fundamental principles of Two Great Threads, is I would like to be able to look after wildlife for as long as I possibly can. There's a world where wildlife are increasingly going to need our help in terms of what's going on with habitat and climate, etc. And so I want to be there for as long as possible. So if I want to do that, I'm going to have to work out how I get some sense of myself that is sustainable and can continue into that longer sense. So I think probably my first tip would be to have a conversation with yourself and and look inside and have a level of self-awareness about where your narrative exists about self-care. I know that I struggle with it and I think that's why I constantly have to read my own Two Green Threads advice because... It is something where I have to go, no, I'm going to have to do something that makes sure that I can be here tomorrow and grab an hour's sleep, etc. So that would probably be my first tip. And I think my second tip would be that your level of self-care strategies are actually going to be very, very specific to your world and your journey with wildlife, what sort of species you do, what that involves how much you're involved in other elements of the wildlife community or other areas of your work or your family, et cetera, et cetera. And so for me, for example, one of the things I've come to as a level of understanding is if I get myself really, really, really organised, then I can lessen the sense of anxiousness and potential stress about things that might go wrong. And so I've worked out, I mean, they sound a bit silly in a way. I don't know if they're going to be real tips in how they come across to people. But when I was taking my animals into work all the time, I would make sure that I had double of everything at work. So if the bottle tipped over, 
when I went to feed at lunchtime, I didn't go through a, oh my God, how am I going to feed this animal? Because I live 50 minutes away, so I can't race home and grab some more milk. So I'd have double of everything. I'd have things in the car that if something went wrong, I forgot the teats one day or something. So a level of self-organisation, depending on what's going on in your life and what that means, is just one of the ways that I've crafted my own level of self-care. And I think something also that Sharon picked up on before, and that is surrounding yourself or finding people that you can connect with, that you can discuss this journey with. Because there are, even I think, I'm assuming, I can't speak from a place where I've ticked off self-care to the ultimate level, but if there are people that are feeling that they're doing that, that the reality is you don't live in this sort of constant middle state where everything's balanced and okay. You sort of have bad days and that's okay. And you can have other days where you are, trying to ensure that there's something in it that helps sustain your own physical or mental or emotional well-being, you know, forcing yourself to have a cup of tea outside on the deck or actually ringing someone and going, I'm having a low resilience day, as I often say to a very good friend of mine. And we don't necessarily have to explain all the ins and outs of that. That is absolutely wonderful. And of course, the point is that what works for you in terms of self-care may not work at all for someone else. I do think in some ways it's useful to think, okay, well, here are some ideas, which ones work for me? Absolutely. And you're spot on. And what works for Susie might not work for somebody else. But having a, a guideline can really help just start the ball rolling for you. But what I would encourage people to do is try to get to know yourself, know what your triggers are, know what your sensitivities are, know what makes you feel good, know what you can do that can help build up your emotional reserves. If you've been in a situation in the past that was quite challenging, what did you do to try and overcome that? Often using past references can be really helpful and build our confidence in being able to overcome this challenge that we're faced with at the moment. So I would really encourage people to try and get to know who they are as a person, what are their values, what are their needs needs? What do they need to help calm themselves? And something that I find with just all people and every single person has a nervous system. And what's really, really, really important is for us to learn ways to try and manage that nervous system. Because when we're feeling stressed or anxious, we tend to overthink things and to have circular thinking that really doesn't have an end. And then what happens with that is we excrete all the hormones that are stressed hormones and then we start feeling more panicked and then we can't sleep properly and it's just, it all affects every part of our life. So I'd encourage people to understand themselves and where do they feel stressed? Like, do you feel it in your stomach, like a knot in your stomach? Do you feel like pain in your chest? Do you find you breathe shallowly? Do you start getting a headache? Just try to understand what symptoms you have when you're in that state and then learn ways to try and calm your nervous system first. I think everybody in the world needs to learn ways to calm themselves and the most I find important or an easiest kind of way is deep breath. We mustn't underestimate the importance of breathing deeply from our diaphragm because that can slow everything down within us. We aren't able to stop our heart beating as fast, but by breathing deeply, that can slow the heart rate. And when you're slowing that down, you can feel calmer and then you can think more clearly as to what you need to do. But when we're in that panicked, stressed, fight or flight state, we can't think clearly, you can't think rationally. So I'd really encourage people to find ways that they can implement on a daily basis where they can relax themselves like deep breathing. If you are a wildlife carer listening to this, 
you're going to have your own ideas about what works for you. But I think what's important there is to spend some time thinking about what they might be and what might work for you. But we do have some ideas. And Susie from Two Green Threads has just uploaded an information sheet called Take Care to Give Care, which has a list of prompts on it. It breaks it into a series of ABCs, which is awareness, balance and connection. And it talks about those ABCs as the sort of elements of resilience. And stepping through each of these has to be connecting to a conversation we had earlier, really specific to our own world and what we're sort of going through. But if we have the categories of awareness, balance and connection, then you can start a bit of a list of, okay, well, what are my self-care elements? And the first is under awareness, the sorts of things that we talked about, what are the bits of our lives in terms of wildlife caring that we need to have a greater level of self-awareness on and what are our triggers and what does it mean in terms of how much we're doing compared to other things in our life. I know, for example, that I made a conscious self-care decision in my wildlife caring journey a number of years ago. For 10 years, I had done a regular shift as part of answering the 24-7 phone number that the public rings for assistance for wildlife as part of my wildlife group. And I realised after, well, 10 years of it, that I really got myself into a massive psychological state leading up to that shift, during that shift and after that shift in terms of what it meant for me because I'm a very visual person and so I was picturing a lot of what was going on. And I made a really conscious decision not to continue with that role to make sure that I was assisting the organisation in other ways but that was a personal decision of mine. I know other people that loved doing the phone roster because there's a level of connection with public and a discussion element that really matters to them. So I think a level of awareness is trying to sort of go through an understanding of what are your stress signals, what are your triggers, and Sharon said that before. So I think sort of doing an exercise that takes that through for you. In the balance, for example, there's something in your day in the 24 hours, it may be five minutes, it might be two, it might be 20, but you need to do something that takes you out of an utter immersion into focus and attention and support to wildlife. Something that gives, this is the way I would express it, I'm sure Sharon will have opinions, that gives your physical and mental being just a little bit of relief and space and difference and stillness that can be a break from that. And if that for you is, for me, it's a cup of tea on the deck. I really have to force myself to do exercise. I know it's a fundamental physical self-care element, but I have to do it. And every now and again, I go, God damn it, I am going to go for a walk. So I think picking up on what is that physical experience that you can do as part of balance. And then in connection, as we talked about before, you do have to have some sort of connection with other people. It doesn't matter that we are motivated to support and look after wildlife and love our animals. We are innate social beings and there is something about connecting with other people. So what are the ways that you are doing that and sort of mapping out what's your social ecosystem? How many people are you intersecting with at what sort of level and what are you getting from that in terms of your own physical well-being and capacity to feel supported and be able to talk through things and how do you converse with them and do you do it very often and make sure that you do so a level of self-care that says I think I'm isolating 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 I'm going to make some phone calls to some people I love and trust and just have a conversation. Sharon, to finish off, if you're feeling like things are getting really hard, you're actually not able to look after yourself, you just don't have the capacity, what are some of the things that you can do in terms of seeking more professional help? 
Yeah, it's really important to be able to speak to your doctor just to see if they have any recommendations of people that they would recommend from a mental health perspective. I have a lot of people um, kind of don't want to see a psychologist because of sort of the stigma attached to it, but nobody even needs to know about it. I always say to clients, it's just a space where you can check out of your life and so that you can actually look at what's going on so you can see it a bit more clearly, like what do I need to tweak to try and help myself feel better? And then you go back into your life and you implement the strategies or the discussions that we'd had in that hour. So I think it's imperative that everybody deserves a space that they can just check out of their life for a bit. And if you can see it like just a space where you're talking to a person who's impartial and it's confidential, then if you can see it in that way, then I think that can be really helpful because then I think you'd use the process to your advantage. But the ways around that is really, you can literally Google psychologists in your area and then you can send them an email just to inquire. But if you do speak to your doctor, they can write a mental health care plan. And then what that does is it depending on the psychologist you want to see, it can either give you a rebate or it could give you a bulk billing session, which means you won't have to pay for the session at all. You can get 10 free sessions if you go to a bulk billing therapist per year if you've got that care plan from the doctor. So I'd really encourage people to just talk to the doctor about the options. And then the doctor can often recommend therapists to them as well. And I think picking up on that was something Sharon said really early on in the recording. And I think it's a sort of commitment that we need to make to one another that there shouldn't be this level of fear of admitting the fact that the journey that we go on with our wildlife actually does have an impact on us. I mean, goodness me, we're people that feel and are Mm. connected and doing something for other people. And I think we need to lessen that for one another and make sure that we commit to and as a community being able to have those conversations that doesn't get you marked as someone that's not coping. That's just not fair or appropriate. Again, it doesn't have to be an either or. This is about Mm. trying to work out how we do this to the best possible way so we can be around for the longest time to do it. So if that means talking to someone professionally, then go for it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And let's destigmatize that mm. element. Well, there's so much more to discuss. We're just at the beginning of this conversation, but I hope from here our listeners feel they might have some resources that they can call upon. Sharon Draper, psychologist, and Susie Nethercott-Watson, thank you both so much for your time. You can find Two Green Threads, Susie's website that's been set up to assist carers in their own self-care at twogreenthreads.org, T-W-O-G-R-E-E-N-T-H-R-E-A-D-S.org. And you can keep up to date with what's happening with Wildlife Heroes at wildlifeheroes.org.au. That's heroes with two E's, H-E-R-O-E-S. I'm a terrible speller. Don't forget to like us on your podcast app. Spread the word to anyone you think will find this helpful. And from us here at Wildlife Heroes, Caring for the Carers, I'm Gretchen Miller, and I'll see you next time.